This podcast and others are brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at a logical fallacy with two names. The first is context imposition, also known as fantasy projection. And then we'll read through a chapter on hedonic treadmill as a cognitive bias from Rolf DeBelli. Okay, my source on this logical fallacy is Hogeye Bill, which is my initial source. And then if I usually do a search for something with a bit more uh, substance, some of his have a lot of substance. Uh, a lot of his explanations, his summaries have a lot of substance that I can I can go off. Some of them do not, so sometimes I search for an alternative source, but I always start there. So he calls this primarily context imposition. So I'll read through. He's got some examples, and we'll go from there. An attempt to impose his own intellectual or moral context on another person by someone who has closed his mind to reality and manufactured his own fantasy, then expects others to share it and help him sustain it. He ignores the objective realities of the situation, concentrating instead on subjective perceptions that are false. So my initial thought is this person who is doing this may not realize they're doing it. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, So here's some examples. If you were terminally ill, you too would advocate life preservation, right? If somebody says that, if you were terminally ill, you would also advocate life preservation. Um. That's not necessarily true, right? Obviously, within their context, I guess they are terminally ill and they value um, or they advocate for life preservation. They are of the mind that everybody else would do likewise if they were in the same position, if they were in the same context. And this person probably, probably has convinced themselves of this and they probably can't imagine somebody being terminally ill who is not as adamant for life preservation as they are. So are they making any sort of valid argument? No, they're um, they're sharing an opinion, I would say, under duress. I mean, it's, I guess, a natural, uh, they're under duress in sort of a natural way. They're not being coerced, but that's causing them to project this this fantasy, I guess. Here's another one. There are no atheists in foxholes. This is This is based on the belief that Anybody in a foxhole during wartime uh, must be adamantly praying to God to spare their life because it's such a such an intense, um, high stress, life threatening situation, right? Somebody just can't even imagine that a person may not believe that there's any God to pray to while being under that type of uh, stress or duress. I guess we'll go with that again. 
So he's got something here that's sort of along these lines as well, um, imposition, imposition of the slave mentality. Okay, so this, this is kind of interesting. This is, this is, again, context imposition. The question, aren't you thankful that they allow this? Right, so which means whoever they're speaking to is expected to limit themselves to the context of their allowables. Right, and the proper answer might be no. I am resentful that they forbid other freedoms I should possess. Here's a metaphor of that. They have a six-inch knife and have stuck it four inches into me. Should I be thankful that they've not shoved it, it in the final two inches or resentful that they have shoved it in four inches? So when somebody is, is committing this uh, fallacy, they expect others to accept their context and to judge the situation from within that context. And I, I see this a lot um, here in the U.S., Sorry, I don't mean to get political on this podcast. I really don't. But there's this meme or this, uh, I don't know, it's kind of become a cliche or a trope that we should be grateful for our freedoms. And that that's kind of evidence of a slave mentality, right? Who Who are we supposed to be grateful toward, right? Where do our freedoms come from, right? And the, and the, the, the practical answer, the, the realistic answer is that there are people who have the power and believe they have the authority to deny us some freedoms, right? So the claim that we should be grateful for the freedoms we have implies that we should be grateful to those people who, have, who believe they have the authority and certainly have the power to deny us exercise of, of all of our freedoms. That for what freedoms they don't deny us the exercise of, we should be grateful for. And it's the same thing as, as the example given here. They've stuck the six-inch knife in halfway. Should we be grateful they didn't stick it in all the way? Or should we be resentful that they stuck it in at all? So that's, that's kind of the question. Should we be grateful that we have some freedom? Or should we be resentful that we don't have all of our freedoms? That these people impose on us their will over how we should use our, our bodies and our property. So that's context imposition. That's sort of a slave men, uh, imposition of the slave mentality, I guess, would be a, a sub fallacy of this. Um, this probably happens a lot when people are under duress, whether it's a natural duress, like a, a disease or something, and they start to believe that what, 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 what they're valuing in those times, those times of being under duress is what everybody else would also, excuse me, would also value if they were also suffering. You got to be careful with that because that's not necessarily true. You got to be careful about believing that when you're the one who's in that position, right? Try not to project this this fantasy world of how everybody thinks and everybody would think if they shared your context. Okay, let's go to, this is The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf DeBelli. This is the source I'm using for this half of these episodes. This is chapter 46 on the hedonic treadmill. So as I do, I'm just going to read through this and add some commentary. Suppose one day the phone rings. An excited voice tells you that you've just scooped the lottery jackpot, $10 million. How would you feel? How long would you feel like that? Another scenario. The phone rings and you learn that your best friend has passed away. Again, how would you feel? And for how long? In Chapter 40, False Prophets Forecast Illusion, I don't think we've read that one yet, we examine the miserable accuracy of predictions, for example, in the fields of politics, economics, and social events. 
We concluded that self-appointed experts are of no more use than a random forecast generator. So moving on to a new area, how well can we predict our feelings? Are we experts on ourselves? Would winning the lottery make us the happiest people alive for years to come? Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert says no. He has studied lottery winners and discovered that the happiness effect fizzles out after a few months. So a little while after you receive the big check, you'll be as content or as discontent as you were before. He calls this affective forecasting, our inability to correctly predict our own emotions. A friend, a banking executive whose enormous income was beginning to burn a hole in his pocket, decided to build himself a new home away from the city. His dream materialized into a villa with 10 rooms, a swimming pool, and an enviable view of the lake and mountains. For the first few weeks, he beamed with delight. But soon the cheerfulness disappeared, and six months later, he was unhappier than ever. What happened? As we now know, the happiness effect evaporates after a few months. The villa was no longer his dream. I come home from work, open the door, and nothing. I feel as indifferent about the villa as I did about my one-room student apartment. To make things worse, the poor guy now faced a one-hour commute twice a day. (laughs) This may sound tolerable, but studies show that commuting by car represents a major source of discontent and stress, and people hardly ever get used to it. In other words, whoever has no innate affinity for commuting will suffer every day, twice a day. Anyhow, the moral of the story is that the dream villa had an overall negative effect on my friend's happiness. Many others fare no better. People who change or progress in their careers are, in terms of happiness, right back where they started after around three months. The same goes for people who buy the latest Porsche. Science calls this effect the hedonic treadmill. We work hard, advance, and are able to afford more and nicer things, and yet this doesn't make us any happier. So how do negative events affect us? perhaps a spinal cord injury or the loss of a friend. Here, we also overestimate the duration and intensity of future emotions. For example, when a relationship ends, it feels like life will never be the same. The afflicted are completely convinced that they will never again experience joy, but after three or so months, they're back in the dating scene. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew exactly how happy a new car, career, or relationship would make us? Well, this is doable in part. Use these scientifically rubber-stamped pointers to make better, brighter decisions. A. Avoid negative things that you cannot grow accustomed to, such as commuting, noise, or chronic stress. B. Expect only short-term happiness from material things such as cars, houses, lottery winnings, bonuses, and prizes. And C. Aim for as much free time and autonomy as possible since long-lasting positive effects generally come from what you actively do. Follow your passions even if you must forfeit a portion of your income for them. Invest in friendships. For most people, professional status achieves long-lasting happiness as long as they don't change peer groups at the same time. In other words, if you ascend to a CEO role and fraternize only with other executives, the effect fizzles out. Okay, um, I like this. This one, this one has a few stoic themes in it, which is which is something we focus um, entire episodes on is is stoic themes. So this this fits really well. But the first one I would say is expectation. Right, his solutions here, letter B, expect only short-term happiness from material things, such as cars, houses, lottery winnings, bonuses, and prizes, and whatnot. And, you know, supposedly, according to this guy, and I really have no reason to doubt it, it's certainly what I've experienced in my own life, that that the science is right, that the effect is fizzled out by about three months. And a, a lot of... um other than the the abrupt, you know, you won the lottery type thing, a lot of 
the happiness, the excitement is produced through anticipation and the anticipation hormone, which is dopamine, I think. Let me check that. Yeah, dopamine. Dopamine is the hormone that your brain releases or whatever when you're anticipating something. Um, so when you're when you're looking forward and you're 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 in this state of anticipation, right? This dopamine causes you to feel better, to feel well, to feel happy. That's what dopamine does. And you achieve the thing you've been anticipating, right? And then you probably have another hormone, serotonin or something that is then utilized. But then after a couple months, all of that is drained out of your system because you're not anticipating anymore. And the novelty's worn off, so you're not excited anymore. And unless you've you built a stronger foundation of contentment and happiness before that, you're going to be right back at that level, which I think is what he's talking about here. And if part of that, um, whatever it was you were anticipating, comes with additional stressors in your life, like a longer commute, then at the end of that, you know, couple of months, you may be worse off, right? So these are things to consider, right? Re- remember that the anticipation is part of the excitement, okay? And that's, you know, once you achieve the thing, that, that part's going to go away unless you can build anticipation for something else. Novelty is also part of the thing that wears off. That goes away too. And when those have worn off, the anticipation and the novelty, are you left with more stressors or less? Right? Think about this these things ahead of time to consider whether or not what you're what you're going after is really going to be worth it at the end of the day. It might be, but it might not be. And think about, you know, just just standard uh, standard thoughts. Think about how much free time you have. Think about how much autonomy you have. Think about your passions. Think about your friendships, your relationships, and the things that you do, right? These are the things that are going to build your baseline level of contentment. And of course, if you have mental health problems, anxiety, depression, things like that, then you know you should probably get help for that because that's going to affect, that's going to alter at different times, that baseline level. And anticipation may pull you out of that for a a while. But once that's done, the anticipation's gone, the novelty's gone, you're going to have those problems again. They're going to come back because you haven't resolved them, right? Either therapeutically or pharmaceutically or nutraceutically. So I guess the the, the overall message here is just be mindful of these 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 probabilities. Be mindful that this is sort of just how we work. This is how our brains work, again, with anticipation and with novelty. And maybe put more of your focus on achieving a healthier baseline than on these little, you know, these little short-term boosts, Um, especially if these short-term boosts actually leave you worse off at the end of the day. Okay, I think that's going to do it. So we looked at context imposition, also known as fantasy projection. And we looked at uh, the hedonic treadmill, anticipation, novelty, back down, anticipation, novelty, back down. <laughs> and that the, the, the anticipation and the novelty can be very expensive or it can be very cheap. So that, that's part of the calculus, right, that you, you go through when you decide whether or not you're going to do it, right? Definitely consider the expense, right? This, you know, 10-bedroom villa or whatever this financial guy, his friend, bought, 
you know, if he's got a large family and everybody's going to utilize it and he's going to be coming home to life, then it, you know, it's probably a good purchase. But if he's single and he's coming home to an empty house, then after three months coming home to the empty villa, he didn't feel any different than coming home to an empty apartment. And he's however many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars poorer. Plus, he's got the extra commute. (laughs) Probably wasn't a a wise decision to make. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Everything Voluntary, a podcast where I promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. You can rate and review this podcast in your podcast app, and please share it with everyone you know. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EVC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary.com.